0: Case file number 3.9. You have mail. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last ten years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker.
1: Hey, Ymir. Yeah. When do you think the first email was sent? And by email, I mean an asymmetric message sent for somebody else to read mm-hmm. on another computer.
0: Okay. In 80, 85, 86?
1: Nope. 1971. Oh, really? Yeah. And for context, in 1970, the first IBM computer with semiconductor memory was sold. Oh, damn. Yeah, they previously used uh, a magnetic core memory technology, but like modern memory just barely started.
0: What was the content of this email?
1: Nothing I read actually had the content of the original test emails. So in the early 70s, like 1970, Ray Tomlinson was working with a small team to develop uh, 10 x Uh, the operating system because this was like right around when unix was becoming a thing Mm -hmm. this is all done on the old pdp tens which was i think either the system or the system before ken thompson developed unix so we're right in that time period where unix isn't a thing
2: damn
0: okay yeah
1: (laughs) or isn't a universal thing right yeah so they were doing this at bbn which a lot of early internet development happened right now that uh, right now it's um BB, uh, Raytheon BBN Technologies, but when you hear it referred to, you'll hear it referred to as BBN. Mm, yeah. And it's old school from the beginning. They've been working on a lot of the foundational stuff from the internet and they continue today doing a lot of stuff. I happen to know they also do a lot of defense contracting and stuff for our friends in the three letter agencies. Mm, yep. <laughs> but at that point in time, pretty commonly on, or actually on pretty much all of these systems, were thing were. Local email system, the ability to leave a message for another user on the same computer more or less
0: like notepad
1: well, we'll get into this a little bit, but even regular UNix Linux systems have versions of this, but it's basically the fundamental ability of you being able to append to a file and somebody else that, that somebody else is going to look at to look for messages hmm, okay so it's a little bit more complicated than just multiplayer notepad. Mm-hmm which, you know, is IRC and we may get to that at some point. (laughs) (laughs) But this is local messaging within a computer and they are using send message to send, the the SND is the name of the utility to Mm. send messages and then read mail to read them. Well, in 1971, Ray Tomlinson used a utility called CopyNet, C-P-Y-Net, N-E-T, uh, to copy messages Two other computers. And he hmm. basically was looking at email as, hey, how do I append to a file that somebody else, that is in somebody else's home directory that somebody else owns? Okay. So he modified uh, CopyNet to be able to append to the mail spool files and invoked this on the network he had, which was two computers, BBNA and BBNB, <laughs> okay. which were both PDP-10s. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the he modified CPNet to be able to do that, and then after he tested it, sent a self a mail a uh, mail message from one computer to the other, and got it working. He sent a message to everybody on both systems saying, "Hey, you can now send messages from one computer to another, and here's how to do it." Oh, nice. Okay. So we at least know what the first mass email said. <laughs> <laughs> But we don't have a Watson come in here. I, I need you moment like we have for the telephone,
0: right? Was was there? Um, so I listened to like the Conan O'Brien podcast. Okay, and he went into the you know the the invention of the telephone and the original concept was when you called someone, the greetings would be like ahoy and ahoy ahoy, <laughs> and like that's how you would like sign on and sign off. And like, was there like any like he's like hey like I envisioned this. You know with this new thing I, I created that just kind of was immediately like dropped as everyone took uh, hold of this
1: i think that in uh contrast to the formality that you're talking about that you're talking about there which probably came very much to from radio discipline i mean mm-hmm. it sounds a lot like like radio discipline yeah this was started informal very informally because they were already used to sending messages from one person to another within the system it was just, oh, I could just do this to another computer. Okay. Yeah. Without really thinking through the whole structure of what an email address is and how to scale it. Because mm-hmm. all of this was done by system to system copying. Right, right. And the copying that they were doing actually predates FTP file transfer protocol. They were using a protocol called initial connection protocol and just sending it in blocks by bytes at a time. And none of this was authenticated at all in any way.
0: But, I mean, that makes sense, yeah.
1: That checks out, 1970, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was the first email, but not email as we know. There were a lot of different iterations on email. Email has always been, from the dawn of the internet, a killer app, as in a thing that everybody used and uses the the network for. Right. But... They went through several iterations of these things using things like Unix to Unix copy and several other things to try and do this. Until we get to about 1980, where our old friend, John Postel, that guy that was the unsung hero that managed all the Internet numbering until his death in 1997. Right. No, it's 99. Well, he was also the guy that published the very first RFC on Email independent of file transfer protocols. Really? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: So, pour another one out for John Postal. <laughs> Jeez, man. Or Postal. Uh, pro- I'm probably even putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. The emphasis on the wrong syllable um, <laughs> for for a while now. Um, but so uh, in RFC seven uh, seven seventy two, he proposed a mail transfer protocol that didn't use FTP to replicate from system to, ses- to system. Mm-hmm. They went through some revision and iteration and in 1981, November 1981, he published RFC 788, the original simple mail transfer protocol RFC.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. And, and SendMail, based on the right reading, it was one of the initial implementations, but it's definitely the one that survived as like the er implementation of
0: email. Right, yeah.
1: And a lot of us have, heard of Sendmail and possibly been traumatized by writing a config file.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still use Sendmail in some of the systems. Really, mm-hmm.
1: I've definitely found that if I need to set something up, I'm probably not using Sendmail at this point. Like just for a one system kind of thing.
0: I, I deal with a lot of people that you know were in their middle age around this time, <laughs> so a lot of their their scripts and stuff like that call for having to use Sendmail still. And awesome.
1: And nothing ever dies. It it just uh isn't in the repo anymore. Yep, exactly. So it doesn't mean that you don't get to get rid of it. But um, sendmail is very likely still in your repo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is. <laughs> for whatever value of Linux you're running, and whatever value is your, your your repo. Yeah, it's still up there. But sendmail was released like very soon after 1982 or uh, early 1982, and the original spec was pretty simple, and it could only send ASCII, ASCII text it would only supported that character set. So binary stuff didn't work very well. Mm, Okay. There were some attempts to band-aid this, but in 1995, a new specification, um, I can't believe I didn't put the RFC number in there, but I'm sure somebody can look it up. Um, But uh, they published the extended simple mail transfer protocol, ESMTP, which is what we use today, although Mm. we generally refer to it as SMTP. Yeah, exactly and among other things they added multiple internet mail extensions mime types which allowed for sending of different types of uh, types of files it's mm-hmm. also used in http it's uh that's the mime standard is used for several things which was its original intent in the first place is that we don't have to spend specify one kind of of handling and we can use it in lots of protocols
0: mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting cuz i I've seen MIME or ASMIME like all over the place, but because I don't do much with email, Mm -hmm. I've never actually run an exchange server or anything. Like I actually didn't know what the acronym was until just now.
1: Yeah. uh, Occasionally I've had to do some troubleshooting because you'll end up with some MIME type problems with data types. And I've had problems where the data, like certificate information is coming through as ASCII, but occasionally has some problems with processing. So, you might have noticed i didn't mention any kind of authentication with smtp when i said uh when i talked about the standards Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or the revisions to the standards right because there isn't really built into the standard of email any authentication and this ends up being the heart of a lot of the heartburn everybody has when dealing with email on the internet Mm. so i remember way back in the day in the mid 90s or so where you could find a mail server and a lot of them were set up where there was no restriction at all and you could actually telnet to port 25 and write an email raw through telnet to the server and have it sent. Really? Oh yeah.
2: Mm, okay.
1: In fact I can tell you how to do it. I have it in my notes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome.
1: So you start out by declaring what server you are. You say H-E-L-O, yep. and then there's source server. There, this is kind of the raw way to do it. There are options available and there's a different way of doing that call. Uh, that's an LHO, but that's a, a revision of the original Hello. So, but you know, this is the simplest example. I understand that there's lots of optional things you can do. There are changes since this was a thing, but this is the original old school way of doing it. You specify a mail from, Mm-hmm. email address is a receipt to and a from and a to address. You might notice that the from address, the mail from address and the from address that is published in the email are not the same thing. This is actually both that and the receipt to mm-hmm. and the to address in the email. Like that's important to doing analysis. Even today, when you look at the mail headers, that's one of the things that you're going to look for.
0: Okay. Cause they'll show up differently in your, um, uh... Yeah. Email client.
1: The email client almost always just presents the from and the to field. Mm -hmm. But in the email headers, you're going to have the mail from and the receipt to.
2: Mm, Okay, okay.
1: Which tend to be the validated parts of things. So you can say, I came from badguy.com, but represent from example.com.
0: Yeah, I've definitely, I've seen seen that, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So, I mean, that ends up being one of the very first things to look at when you're doing analysis of email headers. As complicated as they've gotten nowadays, you can still look at that and that'll help you out 80, 90% of the time at least.
0: Especially, I mean, if it's just, if you get an email from
1: verizon.com
0: yeah. and you look at it and you're like, that's not even anywhere near Verizon.
1: <laughs> like- Honestly, I probably won't even get to the use of webmail services and the spoofing of that we have enough to cover for just regular email today
2: right
1: yeah um we again we were talking about another two episode set of spam wars and the the spam pyre strikes back (laughs) but we're talking about email because in order to do those episodes we have to talk about the basics of email Yep. Um, so the from to, the date, the subject, and the body text by a line with just a period in it, and then you can quit. Or you can send another email in the same format, everything but the but, the, but the hello, mm-hmm. to send multiple emails. But again, with this, with an open relay, there's no validation that you're sending from a source. All you really need is a recipient that's valid on the server. okay You can also use this because SMTP allows you to chain through multiple servers, you can actually use this kind of, you know, representing whatever the heck you want because there's no validation hmm. to send to other email servers as long as, again, you have a valid recipient. It'll relay for you. Hmm. Poor configurations will relay for you. But the thing was, early on, everything was kind of what in what we consider now to be a poor configuration. The defaults were kind of enable everything because if all the functionality was enabled by default, then it's a lot easier to just fire and forget, get up and go. Right,
0: right. Well, we'll we'll get it working at first and then we'll hammer out the the security afterwards.
1: Exactly. Security will come, you know, when we have time, which usually means when the house is burning down. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so like the at symbol in your email address used to be way back in the day. So you'd have your username at and then the host name you were at. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, Bob at example.com, it would be Bob at host1.example.com.
2: Because
1: okay. if you happen to go to school back and uh, go to college back in the 90s, you may very well have gotten a Unix account on one of the multiple Unix systems they had for, for students, which was a pretty common way of doing things throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And then you wouldn't be at Franklin University, you know, good old fu.edu, mm-hmm. you'd be, you know, zeus.cs.fu.edu, you know, oh, okay. Bob at, yeah. or Bob G at, yeah. So the at symbol was always was originally intended to point to which specific computer the user account was on, because all of this going back to the original implementation was the Unix, uh, Unix servers would ha- would have your mail spool in slash var slash spool slash mails, the standard implementation now, to write to that file. And then eventually folks realized that we actually wanted to to run email as a standalone thing, Mm. that people were reading their email without shelling into a thing, but using, you know, POP3 or IMAP clients, and we'll talk about those in a second, Mm -hmm. to read their email instead of getting onto the Unix system to read their email.
0: It, it makes sense. Like it's it's more cumbersome to have to log into the system to yeah just read the email,
1: right? And then we and then like part and parcel to this to the, kind of the same changes in the way that email people used email. They started wanting to do email at the domain level rather than at the computer level hmm. because we had definitely jumped from where there were like BBN this this foundational internet company that was doing real development on that had two computers in 1970 Mm, for, for that development at that point in time, the number of computers was probably like real computers was in the thousands.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, could you just imagine like nowadays having to email someone and be like, ah, shit, what computer, like, which, which number are they on? Are they on like 4,712 or is it 50,002?
1: Yeah. Well, Email host four thousand seven hundred twelve dot east one. Yeah, 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 exactly. Dot at best.
0: Yeah, by the time you finish <laughs> typing out, it's like oh, I could have just sent this via like legit mail carrier. <laughs> it would have got there by now.
1: Or pigeon to go back mm. to the internet episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so people were rethinking the way that they used email. Um, the number of computers that were out there was bigger, and we. We're also making that leap from where people were using Unix computers, of which there were, you know, hundreds of thousands, to the what we call the mini computer era, where people are using what we think of today as desktops. Okay. And so, like, so there's a bunch of things that changed then, but there was the twin things of both people wanting to to have the shortened just at the at the domain level, at the zone level email addresses and people using clients on things like windows systems in order to read their email. Right, right. I mean, without that, people having dial-up ISPs would have been significantly lower if they couldn't read their email on their windows machine. Mm-hmm. Cuz you would have the technical barrier would have been much higher and we haven't talked about it yet, but the internet as a cultural phenomenon, the internet as a thing that people who weren't techies Or academics used really started in 1995 with AOL. So, like, this was all of this happening at about this time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, even nowadays, it's rather difficult sometimes to like explain email to like people of a certain generation. I can't imagine being like, oh, like it's not as simple as just click this icon and like look at your emails. Like, no, you gotta. All right, like let me let me show you putty and uh, let me show you how to SSH to the system and like navigate around via a terminal.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and back then, even to get it working, troubleshooting was kind of annoying because the POP3 and IMAP, POP3 would read all would download all of your email to the client, and IMAP basically let the, uh, kept it up on the server, downloaded messages one by one,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and both were not encrypted but authenticated. It was clear text. This was back in the days of clear text. Right. But sending out messages didn't happen through POP3 or IMAP. Your computer was doing this instead of doing it by Telnet, but they were sending uh, a uh, connection to the mail cert, to your authorized mail server in a very similar way as I just described.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
1: mean, the mail client was doing it, but you could easily be in a situation where you could receive mail, but not send it.
0: Yeah. I do remember. Yeah. Like maybe my first semester, my second semester, like, or like just learning all this stuff for one of the certifications. Mm-hmm. Like learning the difference between Pup3 and IMAP and then also like these are only for like pulling down emails. They're not for sending emails and like, you know, just all these different things that just come, kind of bombard you when you're getting into, into the stuff.
1: Yeah, so going back just to, you know, backing up just a second to the whole idea of receiving email at a domain level, part of what enables that is going back to the DNS episode, the MX record. Mm-hmm because you don't need an MX record if you're sending it to a destination host. You're just making a connection on port 25. Right. But if you were sending an email to a whole domain, that domain needs to have an, have an MX record in order to work. Right. Because the server needs to figure out which server it needs to connect to in order to send that email. Yeah, yeah. So this is all the very basics. This is all like things that make modern email work that weren't some of these things weren't required at the very beginning. And then the last thing is when we're talking, we talked a little bit about about open relay. In fact, that's the next thing is talking about spams and open spamming and open relays. Mm -hmm. But initially servers configured for simplest possible implementation is, hey, receive emails from whoever, from whoever wants to connect. Right. So the first things you wanted to do was not make them open. And to do that, you can, you can do things uh, in Sendmail. I believe the command is mrelay. And in a lot of other email servers, it's called a smart host hmm. or the, the command set is usually called a smart host where you say only receive emails from this set of networks or some other parameter. Okay. In the early 2000s, uh, some of the, some of the um, specifications for authenticated uh, SMTP also started to come into play. But uh, if you're like a dial up network, you could very easily you could very easily say only do that open relay stuff receive emails without authentication or or validation from um, for relaying from systems within my dial-up network pool mm-hmm. yeah uh, so if you're dialed in you can send an email but if you're not you can't makes sense although sometimes that's not the way they did it <laughs> anyway. so we talked about open relays and what that meant was that, as long as somebody has, has a um, recipient to send to, a valid recipient, they can send an email from anywhere and they can impersonate anybody mm. using the old school stuff. So that gave rise to spam Right. and specifically email spam because spam is actually a term that encompasses email spam, blog spam, even back in those days, spam also encompassed um, Usenet spam, a spam and network news protocol, had a lot of the same content of, hey, click on this, go buy my stuff kind of stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. But we're specifically talking about email spam. And there was essentially nothing to control this. Well, in about 96, the Mail abuse prevention system was started by Paul Vixie and uh, Dave Rand and they created the real-time black hole list and created a means to distribute that using d and update it using uh, dns and that became the dnsbl the domain name spam block list oh, okay i uh, believe is what it is um and you may remember paul vixie from uh previous hits like bind mm-hmm, yeah. writing bind and several other utilities paul vixie's another one of these put a lot of the unsexy moving parts in place for us to have an internet that we have today. Right, yeah. So they were taking known spam things and manually putting them in this DNS system, but the DNS system could be read by anybody and they could just say, and you could configure your server to say, okay, if I've got an email from this IP, check the DNS block list, okay, it's on the spam list. I'm just not going to accept any email from them.
2: Okay, yeah, yeah.
1: This is the first implementation of this kind of thing. Spam House and the spam block list really started in 1998. And they started doing things like increased spam reporting, actually scanning for open relays using network scanning stuff. Okay. Those are things that, that, that they currently do now. Although I believe the scanning stuff may very well have started with the open relay behavioral modification system, the, uh, ORBS system.
2: Hmm,
1: okay. And orbs was start was started in New Zealand. and unfortunately, this is kind of this is actually kind of a a um a sad story because he he tried really hard to stop spamming on the internet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but he got crushed pretty quick. It was started by Alan Brown in New Zealand, and it was an early dNS based black hole list, just like the the maps one. Right, But it was controversial for a bunch of reasons, but the big one was that it scanned for open relays and then and put them on a block list. And this was back in 1996. So this was before we got our modern sensibility that scanning isn't a crime. Right. So at the time, at least some people thought it was controversial that they were scanning for open relay ability without permission. Hmm. Okay. And it was shut down in 2001 due to Brown's health and the fact that they that he was being sued by by a couple of different companies that were listed on orbs Hmm. they were suing because they were blocked by the list because of the probes right so he ended up having to sell his ISP Manawatu internet services to cover expenses he was also uh had a definite defamation lawsuit against him because Brown had made defamatory comments against uh, Patrick O'Brien, CEO of Domains, which is the .nz domain registrar. Comments were made on the Domains discussion group. When Brown was offered a chance to apologize, he made additional defamatory comments. (laughs) So O'Brien actually won a victory in New Zealand court against him for $42,000. And Brown claimed his net worth was only about 500 bucks which is why he didn't have a a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So the original orb system died pretty quickly, but a lot of the techniques, well, they lived on. Uh, and again, they were' they're incorporated in the way that a lot of the block lists that we currently have are generated, right? Although the number of open relays has decreased significantly over time. I, and there are statistics out there I just couldn't find any set of statistics from any two sources that agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I, I just wasn't able to dig up anything that I thought was, was reasonable. But the number of truly open relays is significantly lower than it used to be.
2: Mm, okay.
1: Down in probably the single digit percents. Hmm. But again, I did a lot of searching and I didn't find anything that made me feel like I, like I really trusted the stats. There was some statistics um, that were done um, based on some email lists from about 98 to about 2001,
2: mm, okay. 97,
1: 98 to 2001, that were email addresses from under 100 mail group lists. And they started pretty high. Uh, they went from over 50% of them uh, allowing open relay Emails to be sent right to under five percent in that time. Oh, really? Yeah, for that limited set. Mm. But obviously, the email lists that they're going from probably have a pretty significant selection bias, and at that point in time, they're probably very America-centric.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: So I could see because these were these were computer science folks that the lists that they grabbed in order to do this surveying uh, were probably domains that were associated with people that were kind of in the core of the internet. So there's probably selection bias in this versus a representation, a good representation of the entire internet, Mm -hmm. but it does show that in that time the the word got out, at least within the internet community, to be a lot better about this and the and the configuration.
2: Right, right. Yeah.
1: I I hate to be as wishy-washy about that, but again, I'm really not comfortable with the amount with the with the statistics that I came up with during the research of this episode.
0: No, I'm very curious. Because my, my very first gig up at of College, which is probably like the very first gig for a lot of people, was working for a managed service provider. Mm-hmm. And we did have one client. Um, it was a, a for-profit organization. And they'd had one exchange server. Mm-hmm. And that was my only time dealing with an exchange server was having to go in because it was having just a whole host of issues. But I do remember one of the staff there was like, oh, I'm also having issues with my Outlook client. And I came over to look at it, and her her issue was basically that she had saved every email from <laughs> basically nineteen like ninety four on.
1: Yeah, Outlook back then, especially, had some real problems with the uh, with the archive file if it got too big.
0: Yeah, uh, she, her yeah. archive I think was uh, around six hundred gigs or something like that. Six. Yeah, it, it 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 was massive. Um, and yeah. like this was this was the root cause of her issue and. She would not delete any emails. I was like, I, like, I don't, I don't want to tell tell you this, but I'm pretty sure half these people are dead. Like, they're probably never going to email you back.
1: Well, I will at least say this from from a, from a technique point of view. I do keep a pretty substantial archive, hmm. but I tend to rotate it either yearly or quarterly, kind of depending on my job is and what my email inflow is. And I save basically everything that's sent to me that doesn't make it past my sorting filters right. and everything that I sent, but I create a new file yearly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like my, my CYA policy is to save a lot of the emails and mm-hmm. yeah, also just helps having to refer back. Cause some of these missions don't progress for years yeah. on end. So kind of sure. like looking back to be like, what the hell did we talk about four years ago? Like when we were planning this, cause now we can actually like implement it.
1: Yeah. When you necro yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I don't remember if I've told this story before, but I was at a company where I was brought in mostly to deal with a single, a single contract of standing up a, a, a security event management system. But I lent a hand on some of their internal security stuff when they had a problem because they didn't want me spending time on that mostly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And since they didn't really let me do much of anything, I hadn't looked at any of their configurations or anything like that. And then they were like, nobody's receiving our emails today. Okay. It was because their IP, their outgoing email IP, was on a known spammer list.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah. They were able to get some understanding of what was going on, but they couldn't find any of the emails on the email server. Hmm. What was happening was that one of the users got infected by a botnet that was sending out spam. Ooh, okay. And the way they had their firewall configured is not uncommon for small offices and even home networks where all traffic egress is on the same IP address. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the workstation that was sending that stuff out was sending it out on the same IP that the exchange server was normally operating on. Okay. So as far as the receiving email servers were concerned, they were the same box. <laughs> So I figured that out and cleaned up the system. (laughs) And they were like, well, why would people do this? I'm like, because like, this is good in email hygiene. In fact, because I had happened to be on their email server, not that much before, uh, I don't remember why. It was like, I believe I saw that the configuration you guys use on your exchange server does the same thing. Mm. (laughs) And as soon as I showed him there, he was just like, "Uh, okay. (laughs) I'm... Ashamed of that to a degree, even though I didn't set it up that way, mm. I didn't kind of insist on knowing what was going on on that on on their network. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't my place, but I felt like this is some awful stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: In part because it also meant that their antivirus was, let's say they have a they had a very liberal exception policy for having antivirus on their systems. Yeah, I mean. Uh almost everybody there was a developer and they kind of didn't make sure that people were running any kind of, uh, of, of hygiene and bit at least one of them by empirical evidence.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, we have, we have certain applications that transfer just files way too often. And like, you know, obviously we have antivirus on our systems, but we do make large exceptions for large swaths of partitions because, you just can't scan it with the amount of data going, coming in and coming out. They would just crash the system.
1: I mean, there's only so much we can do to prevent all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But now we're getting to spam House. spam House project was started in Andorra and Geneva and founded by Steve, uh, by Steve Linford in 1998 to track email spammers and spam-related activity. The name SpamHouse is uh, pseudo-German and coined by Linford, uh to refer to basically any place that spam was coming from like a a company or or internet service provider that knowingly provides services to spammers or is a spammer themselves.
2: right right okay
1: they were identifying spam based on reports They, they started doing some open relay stuff nowadays they actually have a pretty sophisticated list of known spamming firms servers to block domains to block uh sources of not just spam, but exploit, mater- exploit material. Hmm, okay. So they've got—they actually got a fair bit of granularity. I hadn't looked at them in a long time. I didn't realize how sophisticated and granular they've got. Although chances are very good if you're getting intelligence from any source, they're probably incorporating this into what they're doing. So chances are, if you're working in a in like a serious company hmm. or, or a serious organization that is getting real-time updates from whoever because this is all free information chances are very good that it's incorporated in you may want to just for your own edification check whatever got caught against their list but chances are pretty good if it's on spam house's list it's on somebody else's list too not to say the work they're doing isn't really important it's because it's so important that it's incorporated in a lot of other people's intelligence
0: feeds right right Interesting yeah, I'm not sure I'm'm I'm sure we we pull from
1: it. I haven't verified this empirically in a while, but my experience has been like if you've got some kind of of, of mail filtering system in front um and there's a bunch of them out there they're already validating against spam house. in fact, some of the stuff is built directly into exchange um as evidenced by the previous story It's actually was an exchange configuration that was doing that filtering.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I was just like looking through my email to see like what, mm-hmm. um, what junk emails I had. And yeah, I found one that basically said, um, uh, elite customer in this guy's bank that bears a name similar to mine mm-hmm. died and left me $12.8 million.
1: Oh, that's convenient. You could sponsor the podcast on that.
0: Yeah. I, I like this line. Uh, <laughs> his wife was, was the next of kin to the account, but unfortunately she died before him. Oh, yeah
1: that's unfortunate yeah she's so dead that they couldn't even get the grammar right yeah
0: she died so fast like article like articles couldn't even actually be put in there for the sentence
1: exactly <laughs> i mean great tragedies
0: yeah it's a shame it's a shame
1: great tragedies of fictional people <laughs>
0: so anyways i'm a millionaire now
1: well i mean you could lose it really fast by by uh trying to get in with a nigerian prince
0: you, you don't get to be a prince if you're not trustworthy
1: <laughs> i think it might work the
0: opposite <laughs> i could be wrong <laughs> Potentially, potentially.
1: Not to malign any prince's past, present, or future. But uh, anyway, so there are a couple of things that have, that, that have gone on, and I'm going to highlight two of them to Spam House. One was E360 three three lawsuit uh, in September 2006. And honestly, they did a pretty good write-up of this in, in uh, the Spam House article on Wikipedia. Mm. So what I'm going to say is not hugely distinguishable from the article, but I figured it was apt to cover it, at least for this part of things, mm-hmm. this particular case. So David uh, Lindhart uh, sued Spamhouse uh, under the Corporation E360 uh, uh, Insight LLC in Illinois for blacklisting his, his email traffic. Okay. So he was a spammer. He got blocked. He sued because of it. Mm-hmm. So Spamhouse had the case moved to U.S. Federal District Court in Northern Illinois and moved to have the case dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. Hmm. The judge, Judge Charles Kekoros, okay. proceeded with the case without considering the jurisdiction issue, because, again, Spamhouse is not a U.S. organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They're in the U.K. and they're in Switzerland. Right. So um, when he didn't consider jurisdiction, Spamhouse withdrew counsel and refused to participate. However, Spamhouse was deemed to, by the court to have technically accepted jurisdiction by having initially responded at all. And the judge, angry that Spam House walked out, <laughs> uh, awarded E360 the default judgment totaling almost $12 million, one point,
0: or $11.7 million. Really? Jeez.
1: Yeah. Spam House subsequently announced that it would ignore the judgment because the default judgments issued in US courts without a trial, trial have no validity in the UK and cannot be enforced under the British legal system.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah, but it's not over. Oh, Jesus. Following that judgment, uh, E360 tried to force ICANN to remove the Spam House DNS records, revoke their registration.
0: <laughs> really? Okay. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, or suspend them until the judgment was paid, Was is, is technically what they did. Hmm. But though Judge Korkakis uh, denied the motion stating, in his opinion, quote, there is no indication that ICANN is not an independent entity from spam, spam House, thus preventing a conclusion that it was acting in concert. Mm, okay. With Spam House, so the so the court had no authority over ICANN in that matter. Now this is all happening. The judgment and everything happened in two thousand six, early two thousand seven. In two thousand seven, a Chicago law firm, Jenner uh, Block LLP, uh, took up Spam House's case pro bono and appealed the ruling. And in twenty ten, Judge Karakakis, uh reduced the the um, damages to twenty seven thousand dollars. Well, $27,002. There were two judgments uh, for $1 and then a uh, $27,000 judgment for basically expenses or miscellaneous.
2: Jeez, wow.
1: So both parties appealed. Nobody was satisfied with this. But (laughs) E360's case for increasing the damage was sharply criticized by Judge Richard uh, Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court. And Judge Posner shows up in... A non-trivial amount of technical matters he's actually a pretty solid dude in my opinion or a pretty solid uh ju- judge in technical matter he he's he tries to be very educated about these things he's i i've read several things i don't recall any of them off the top of my head but i remember that I like that I that I've liked this guy more often than I've not liked this
2: guy
1: <laughs> but he said I've never seen such an inco- uh such uh, uh, such an incompetent presentation of uh, damage of a damages case uh it is not only incompetent it's grotesque you've got damages jumping around from 11 million to 130 million to 122 million to 33 million in fact damages are probably zero and on on uh, The 2nd of September in 2011, the court reduces the damages awarded to just $3 in total. But here's the kicker and ordered the plaintiff E360 to pay the cost for legal, the legal cost for the defense.
0: Nice. One of the things (laughs) that makes me very giddy is um, when judges just basically bitch slap the entire case. And it's, it's like the, um, the ending of Happy Gilmore, where it's just like, no, we're all just dumber for having read this, and like, why would you <laughs> yes. ever even bring this into like my courtroom?
1: The internet is the wild West, yeah, the defenses that we have in place, like these orb systems, are the only real recourse we have on the internet because even in this case, and this was going the other way, this was somebody who was clearly in the wrong suing a service, which I don't understand the standing here because just because Spam House published the list doesn't mean that anybody blocking them has to participate.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So, I mean, maybe I don't understand the legal implications of that, but I don't understand how how there was even standing to sue Spam House directly. Yeah. But regardless, it took five years for that to to resolve. Can you imagine trying to actually get satisfaction by suing a spammer if you could identify them and get them in a court? To to actually sue them, if they're even within the the country that you want that you want to be able to sue them in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is it's very beneficial. Someone that we won't name, like that that's their MO is dragging people through court cases till they run out of money. Yeah, I and mean, lots and lots of places do that.
1: Yeah, or that same guy is very much a you say no, I'm not going to follow norms. I'm just going to say make me, and if the machinery can't make him, then your sol
0: yeah yeah, yeah exactly it's kind of like they're like oh shit we never thought someone would say no right do you have any fallback plans for that oh no oh damn okay well
1: and going to my my original attempt to bring back point is <laughs> that the technical defenses are absolutely important because the legal defenses have significant limitations there is some stuff that worked pretty well that we're going to get to right after i finish talking about spam house mm-hmm. that did have some good some positive impact but we still have spam and this has been in place since 2003.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'll say like this one final, not even really tangent, but when you when you said, you know, back in the day um, when scanning was considered still kind of, you know, in that muddy area of like, is this is this allowable? Is this prosecutable?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like we're, we're still kind of there because you would just have was it Minneapolis or where that the, the one guy literally just view page sourced on the website. Yeah. And the governor is trying to, to sue him over that.
1: Right. Well, you're not wrong, and like this is a whole thing on a set of episodes I'm not even ready to do yet about mm-hmm. the whole gray hat movement and chilling effect and stuff. But it, we know that that kind of thing has a chilling effect. We've yes. seen it happen.
2: Yep.
1: So, TBD on 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 the whole hacker history, gray hat movement stuff, which right. I've had brewing since basically we started this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the other story about Span House that I want to talk about is when they were hit by one of the biggest denial of service attacks
0: ever. Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah. There was a loose organization of spammers called Stop House. (laughs) Okay. And in March 17th, 2013, they did a denial of service attack on the Spam House website. Because Spam House was using the well-established DNS block list mechanism, and that was replicated mm. in a lot of places. It didn't stop their block lists from operating, but it completely killed their website and their submission system. Oh, okay, They were just getting it straight. They had exceeded their pipe. And so they called up Cloudflare, which is still around today. This is actually a relatively early thing in, in, in Cloudflare's anti-denial-of-service uh, distribu- attack mm. defense stuff not like the first one, but it was relatively relatively early, at least it feels relatively early at this point in what they did. And they went ahead and took them on as a client. And so they used an MEcast mechanism to, so they can announce the same IP, but receive it in a lot of different places at once. Mm, okay. Because they have lots of different network interconnections. So just by the dint of having that, when you spend, when you send a lot of traffic from a lot of different places, it'll get distributed through their network and it's a lot easier for them to cope with the sheer incoming traffic.
0: Mm, okay. That makes sense.
1: And they can deal with that at the, what is in essence the tier three service provider level. They don't ever have to send any of that traffic down the destination pipe to spam house mm. or wherever their client is. So that's basically how that, how they work is, is they started with just a sheer volume of traffic at type of attack. And it doesn't matter how sophisticated your firewall is and what you can do to identify good traffic versus bad traffic if the entire pipe is saturated. Yeah, right. So this is a direct defense to that. So they found that their their denial of service wasn't working anymore. So they upped their juice and started really slamming things. Mm -hmm. And they, they went from a... 10 ish gigabyte attack to like a 75 gigabyte attack.
0: Ooh, just okay.
1: And they were using a lot of things like, um, like uh, we talked a little bit in DNS, the, uh, one of the DNS episodes about the NSEC 3 DNS reflection type attack. Mm-hmm. This was a little bit early for the DNS reflection type attack, but it, they were still able to have an amplification attack by, ma- by spoofing a DNS request and having that reflect to, to the IP that was given up for Spam House by Cloudflare. Okay. So they were able to amplify that way. They used some other techniques like uh, doing a similar thing, which isn't quite as efficient, but is a lot easier to get endpoints for of, a, uh, of just a SYN ACK reflection. Hmm. So they spoof the first part of a TCP connection, the SYN request, and then the SYN ACK goes to the spoofed the spoofed source. Right. Which is how that reflection attack works, and mm-hmm. that's a little bit bigger, so you get some amplification on it, but it's not nearly as efficient as the DNS amplification, Right. even the pre nsec three DNS amplification. So they were doing that, and they really in- increased the the amount of the amount of traffic to to that seventy five level, and then they started realizing that that wasn't doing it, so they actually upped their game again. And this is a, I found this very interesting because I think, because this is the first time I remember reading about this kind of thing. Okay. So Cloudflare does all of this because they have a lot of interconnections to a lot of like tier two network service providers, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what the Stop Spam campaign did was they started hitting the actual network service providers for Cloudflare. Like you do a trace route to the IP that Cloudflare's providing. Okay. Well, the hop before, in That trace route is the network that's peering with Cloudflare. Okay. And they started trying to kill that network.
0: Oh damn. Okay.
1: And several of them. So they managed to actually cause some problems with some of those network service providers. The one that kind of that, that kind of seems to have gotten hurt the worst was the London Um Internetworking Exchange. And it actually caused some service outages for them uh, as part of this whole campaign thing. Now I didn't get as much out of the writing on this as I as I wanted to. Mm. Other reporting on this, but basically, it looks like this was masterminded or started by a cyber by the cyber bunker, and there were several people involved. Uh, a Danish guy was put on trial for this. His name was Sven Olaf Campus, and um, <laughs> he said in August 2016 that he didn't know anything about it at one point. And then he later report later said that, well, I never found out exactly where he, where he was, although he was a little bit of a nutty guy. He believed that the cyber bunker hosting provider that he built in Germany and Holland uh, was a sovereign nation and called himself in emails, the Prince of cyber of the cyber bunker Republic. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, he was arrested in Spain in April, uh, 2013, so about a month after this happened, or the next month, and he got extradited from Spain to Germany and got 240 days of uh, in jail and uh, and a suspended ses- sentence for the rest for the 185 days uh, of his sentence. Uh, so he didn't do any jail time other than the time he spent in jail uh, during the extradition process.
0: Oh, really? Oh, okay. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and. To the best of the reporting, he's kind of billed as the mastermind of this.
2: Okay.
1: Now, the only other person that ever received anything to this was was a guy named Sean Nolan McDonough, aka Narco. He was uh, arrested in the UK, and uh, they seized seventy thousand dollars or sorry, seventy thousand pounds from his bank account, which is expected to be as proceeds for participation. And his efforts in this denial of service attack. He was a teenager at the time, and he was sentenced to 240 hours of community service. So, but because of his age, and in return for cooperating with the national, with the UK's national crime agency, he avoided a jail term.
2: Hmm.
1: So, these are the only people that really paid for this, uh, and this is credited as being uh, uh, a 300 gigabits per second denial of service attack, caused some actual impact. These um, are the only people that served any time for that
0: that's that's crazy
1: yeah and this is even in europe (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes we have our doubts about the about the american justice system but uh, the the european justice system didn't really have the the ability and or the uh capacity to drop the hammer on even the folks that they caught in this case
0: yeah that's crazy
1: so there was some pretty interesting, uh, the, the sophistication of the distributed denial of service attack and the fact that they tried to maintain it over the course of about a week back in 2013. I believe that's about the same time period as we were talking about with the um, with the Sony denial of services.
0: I believe so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway, those are some incidents about Spamhouse that just publishing and doing the research has not been without cost or retribution. Mm-hmm. So, we we're talking a minute about uh, a minute ago about the legal side of things. Well, in 2003, the Bush administration, W's administration actually passed the CAN-SPAM Act. Okay. It's enforced by the Federal T- Trade Commission and hmm. they put various rules in place about spam. They created opt-out rules and certain rules of behavior in order to conform with that. Okay. Like not saying that you're in the source and subject fields, that you're something that you're not. Okay. So basically, scamming over email spam is against the CAN SPAM Act and is subject to its fines and um, and other penalties. Gotcha. Okay. So they revised it in two thousand eight, fixing some of the language. One of the ones was that opt out can't require a fee, and it can only require the email address of the recipient. Okay. And also that opt-out can be done by notification via email or website. So some of the rules they put in place were that you can't make people go through crazy hoops or disclose all kinds of information or pay money to get off of your your spam list.
0: It's interesting that like we have that for spam, but we still have companies where like, like for example, my renter's insurance. Um, The only way to get on my renter's insurance was to call a number that they obviously don't show on the website. And like, there's a lot of like subscription services like this where it's like, Oh, oh, the only way to unsubscribe from this is to call us and we'll make the, the number as hard as hell to find and, you know, put you on a two hour long wait list.
1: If you've got evidence about that, mm. you can go in and, and, um, do a civil lawsuit under the canned spam act. And I believe the penalty is like 10 or $25,000. Oh
2: really? Okay.
1: Yeah. I saw, I want to say a 60 minute story, but God, I don't even know. But I remember seeing a thing where, where a guy was basically doing that and, uh, at the time the anti uh, anti uh robocall phone call suits and making a pretty decent living at at just gathering the information because uh the folks that do it probably don't get hit by this very often yeah you can identify them huh. and and get the evidence uh so uh at least at the time and i don't know how much better they are about it now they don't do a great job of not giving you the evidence you need
0: <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's true with um just the whole legal thing that I was currently working on like in the past week or two and then
2: yep. just Same basically kind of
0: yeah like hand delivering me evidence I could use against them I was like all right well thanks i guess
1: like you have no experience with the court system do you <laughs> yeah. so after was revised in 2008 it was scheduled for review in 2016 um for a 10 year review for uh, for 2018 uh in 2016 and they got a lot of feedback and stuff and they published the review in 2019 and i know it's shocking but they did the right thing i mean they didn't add any new things mm-hmm. but they made no changes to the 2008 revisions hmm. and it was unanimously upheld
2: that's
0: good
1: so small victories
0: yeah, yeah yeah take it take it where you can get it
1: exactly so some of the stuff we want to talk about is validation stuff that was been added to SMTP over time. Um, Things that are useful to know about as an analyst, uh, because you can go and check these things and see if what you're investigating conformed to any of these standards or not. And that might be part of the reason why the problem that you're investigating exists. Mm -hmm. Essentially, this all comes down to, can we validate that the sender of this email was supposed to be Sender of this email, right? And that comes down to three technologies. That one is the sender policy framework. What it does is it uses a DNS TXT record to specify in a very specific format, declare valid sources for emails from that domain. Okay, because it turns out just saying, Hey, just use my MX record is not nearly sophisticated enough for the modern.
2: Mm, Okay,
1: so if you for instance are using a third-party email provider office 365 gmail and maybe even having a third party handle your mail gateway to deal with all of the anti-spam stuff and Mm -hmm. anti-malicious file stuff you won't be sending your email from your source and the MX record of the serving of the receiving server isn't necessarily going to be where things are sent out because it's all the software as a service and could be distributed kind of anywhere. Right. So the sender policy framework, SPF, is sophisticated enough to allow you to say senders from this network or from this domain kind of stuff, that kind of thing. So that allows you to have a flexible enough sending policy to say, here's where you really should be spending or seeing my email sent from. Okay. The concept of, of of this kind of validation was first mentioned in about 2000, but it didn't really get any significant discussion until t- 2002, where Dana Valerie Reese brought up this I, the idea of being able to specify the sources. And she did this, we're pretty sure, independently, that she had no knowledge of the prior discussion a couple of years before. And then Paul Vixie, one of our internet heroes, contributed into the mailing list that she started this discussion, a draft specification like the next day. And because he participated, because there was a lot of discussion going on, this really got things moving. And um, the Internet Engineering Task Force uh, started an anti-spam research group very shortly thereafter. Okay. And then the original spec for the the Sender Policy Framework, SPF, occurs in RFC uh, 4408. Um, that was published in 2006 as an experimental uh, RFC. It was, I think it's optional. In 2014, they, they, they published it at the next standard level up, but it's not a full-fledged required standard at this point. And best I can tell, that was largely a formality mm-hmm. because people started, re- started using it back right around the 2006 time. One of the pieces of stats that I was disappointed in not being able to get was the fact that uh, there were some original research of .com and .net domains that specify it a sender policy framework, but I couldn't find anybody keeping that research up or corroborating it. Yeah, and I think it might actually be a worthwhile um, a worthwhile operation to take up doing that again as a research project.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: So the other another one is the domain keys identified mail, DKIM, uh, uses TXT record to publish a public key that should, can be used to verify sent traffic. But it's also, and this is really hard to explain without having this, there's been some great talks about it. I'm, I'm not going to do it justice in an audio only format, but specifying a DKIM record when a server that gets a mail, uh, an email that is spoofed from your domain tries to validate a DKIM record, yeah. what you'll have in your DNS records is a failed DNS request that tries to request an incorrect DKIM record. Oh, okay. Because it's usually a format of, of some artifact, underscore domain key, dot your DNS zone.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So if you make the request to the wrong thing, then you have a failed DNS request to underscore domain key dot your domain name for that TXT record. So you can see the place that was getting email spoofed from uh, spoofed from your domain. Oh, interesting. It's kind of a cool thing. I'll admit, I don't know that a lot of organizations do a great job of tracking down those and, uh, and following up, but the information is there and that's the first step. So it was designed by uh, Mark Delaney of Yahoo in 2004. It was published in 2007 and revised multiple times between 2007 and 2011, and is currently defined as RFC uh, 6376. And the last piece of the puzzle is this thing called DMARC, and that's Domain-Based Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance. Hmm. Again, it uses TXT record in DNS, and it lets you specify whether or not you have SPF and or DKIM specified, and you can specify an action. You can say, if something doesn't match my my SPF and DKIM records, quarantine it or drop it on the floor or allow it. Right. Okay. So this was specified by the NEITF working group formed in August, 2014. In order to address uh, this kind of this kind of mail demarcation issue, mm-hmm. and the standard was published in March of 2015. Based on my reading, it's not hugely widely implemented, even at this point.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever even heard of it.
1: Yeah, and again, some of the problems I had with some of the some of the information I got on this is right now, like the amount of email that happens to webmail service providers like Gmail and windows is you know office slash uh live slash hotmail whatever and yahoo and whatever those very large providers if they do it that's a lot of email boxes mm-hmm. so the number of domains is less important than the number of active email boxes and i don't know how you get stats on that i think that would be a kind of, that might be a difficult piece of information to get yeah and there's a lot of stuff about which domains you're checking about whether or not the, these records exist, um, right. the DKIM records, it's hard to validate your DK, whether or not a DKIM record exists unless you have participation or you've received real email from that sender right so some of this validation is difficult um, and then kind of the very last thing is that we're now encapsulating a lot of SMTP in TLS mm and it's on port 25 you can use the same service for either enforcing receiving anything via smtps is one th- is is not wide is not widely i believe that the government specifies that you have to send via S- uh, smtps if you can right yeah that's a required um configuration on uh on.gov email servers but one thing that it has done is and i've experienced this in one of my projects um that a lot of email investigation by the SOC was done via Zeek, listening to the traffic. And as more traffic has become via TLS, Zeek is significantly less effective at mm-hmm. doing those things.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: We actually did some really cool stuff on that project several, or I guess it was about four years ago now. With the uh, with the original outbreak of Emotet, there was a, a Zeke Zeek add-on. That allowed, that extracted URLs from emails that went across, and we were able to construct a large enough set of, of links in emails where we had a corpus to figure out what emotet emails looked like. We were able to develop a pretty uh, a pretty uh, a pretty good regular expression to, to identify that. I might've mentioned that previously in, in one of the previous episodes, cause I'm really proud of the work we did there.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's possible. I think, I think I've heard mention of it, or maybe we've just yeah. talked about it off.
1: We might've talked about it off. I, we, we, we talked about some of the, some stuff that, that doesn't make into or hasn't made it into episodes yet. So I'm never quite sure. Cause I know I've told you that story before. Yeah. Yeah. So that's at least the basics of email as much as I could do in, 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 in one episode anyway.
0: Right. Yeah. But Yeah. Lays the foundation for, for future episodes to come.
1: Yeah. And and hopefully it helps uh, helps some of the folks that never really understood the complexity of email, how to investigate stuff on there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: And don't be afraid of opening up your headers. Uh, In fact, I will give you a little tip uh, for everybody who made it down here to the end. If you're in an organization that does phishing tests, a lot of times they will put in their header, a line item in in the header that is X-phishing test, P-H-I-S-H-T-E-S-T. And you can definitively identify whether or not there's a phishing test. And I will leave it as an exercise to the student as to how you create a rule to action on the fishing (laughs) test so you don't have to but let's just say i have verified that it's possible
0: that's that's cool recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online follow hack the gibbs one on twitter to get notified of new
2: recordings support the continued observation of hacking the gibson on patreon